0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Unauthorized Disclosure. I am one of your hosts, Rania Kallick, and I'm joined by the show's other host, Kevin Gastola. Hey, Kevin. Hello. Uh, Kevin and I have a great guest for you guys today. Uh, we have uh, Donna Mert back on the show. Uh, she is an associate professor of history at Rutgers, and she also writes at a bunch of other places uh, like the Boston Review, the Washington Times, the Nation, the New Republic, and more. Uh, so, welcome, Donna. We're so excited to have you back on. Thank you very much. And just just
1: to be clear, the Washington Post, so that I don't, um, no one thinks that I'm. Wrong. And most- <laughs>
0: <laughs> my apologies. I should have. That should have like totally jumped at my at me, and I, I should have again, been like a red alert because I I figure yeah Washington Times wouldn't publish you. I don't think.
2: <laughs> <Okay>.
0: <laughs> but so we well, so we want to talk to you about a bunch of stuff today. But what we want to get started with is a piece that you wrote last month, and it's so it's an incredible piece. It's also a horrific piece. It's called "Paying for Punishment." It's at the Boston Review, um the New Debtors' Prison, and. You know, I thought I knew uh, about the prison system in this country. I thought I knew it pretty well, but what you describe is a lot of things I did not know. Um, and so you, ba- I mean, you like basically talk about the fact that people are being charged for their imprisonment and being like their what little they have is being um, they're being it's being like taken from them by the prison industry, and they're making loads of money off of just like totally taking money from the poorest people that they're imprisoning. So I guess, can you just give a little bit of an overview um, of your piece and and like what it's about? And and, and then we can go from there.
1: Uh, So as you said, the piece is called Paying for Punishment. And what it is, is really a study about how incarceration makes money and how it doesn't just cost money. So I start with just a very quick précis about a moment which honestly has already passed, which was this bipartisan coming together of conservative interest groups with prison reformers and civil libertarians in order to, to decarcerate. And my argument is that You know, one of the dangers is that we need to look to the American past, back to the history of convict leasing and debt peonage in the period that followed the Civil War, because we often think that the biggest reason people are fighting against mass incarceration is the cost. But if you look at how cost is measured, it's a much more complicated question because for uh, local municipalities in particular, the court system is being used to generate money. And this is what happens at the state and municipal level. It doesn't happen in the federal system. So there are all of these ways that these de facto practices, which I think are ultimately unconstitutional, have have slowly developed and really expanded, I think, in it's an overlap between the period of financialization and then the local revenue crises over the last 15 years or so that this system has just grown and grown and it takes money from the poorest people and redistributes it to states and to private contractors.
0: So you mentioned the, uh, the, the like you know, the austerity, I guess you talk a little bit about austerity and how uh, cutting like cutting funding across the country uh, has basically forced states to re- and lo- and like local municipalities to rely on other forms of, of money, and so that's i mean I, I, Ferguson comes to mind um, but so if you're I guess if you're talking if you 've got a lot of conservative groups that like make incarceration about a money issue, well then it's not really doing anything to change the system if you 've got a bunch of municipalities i guess reliant on the criminal justice system now to make money. So I guess, can you talk a little bit about that, about how municipalities are relying on criminal justice as a form of revenue and what that means?
1: Sure. So the way this piece started out originally was um, talking to Boston Review, and we they kind of encouraged me to write a piece on the criminalization of debt. So I start out in a much more straightforward way, looking at um, how ways that people are criminalized for debt why um, there was a a case that happened in February where an older African-American man in his mid-40s, he was arrested by federal marshals and they came fully armed and took him off to prison. And he had a meeting a couple days later with his uh, congressman talking about essentially that he had been arrested for not having paid his student loan debt. And this story just went viral because after all, there are 42 million people that have, um, student debt in the United States. So, you know, student debt is a big deal. And the idea of people being carted off to prison for student debt, especially by the federal government was quite frightening to people. So with further investigation, what they found out was that he really was being arrested in like a contempt of court charge because a federal judge appointed by Reagan, um, had, He had been sent a summons for wage garnishment and hadn't responded to it and didn't come to his court date, and then he was um, charged with contempt of court, and that's why the federal marshals were dispatched. So I was researching this story and trying to find out, is it representative, is it not? And I found very few other examples of it at the federal level. But what it did was just open up all the activist work being done by the Brennan Center, the ACLU, by Arch City Defenders in Ferguson, and kind of the world of the activist lawyers, that I think really prompted that Department of Justice report that came out about uh, Ferguson. And so I was reading that and a lot of investigative material, really great piece done by ProPublica, who were just talking about basically the modern-day system of debtor's prison. And it intersects with more traditional ideas of debt in that um, many— there's been the emergence, um, and they've always existed, but they really have expanded and uh, really become a force of private debt collectors. This is the first part of the system. So, um, and it's been found that they disproportionately target um, Black people and populations of color. So uh, the Private debt collection companies collect debt for much smaller amounts and in much larger rates than do banks. Mm -hmm. But they've learned how to game the system and to use municipal courts to assist in this process of debt collection of wage garnishment for small amounts of money. And ProPublica did this wonderful study, and they found out that in Jennings, the municipality that's next to Ferguson, it's a huge number. I think, I don't know if I'm getting the figure right. I have it in my article. I think it's a third of people were suffering from some form of wage garnishment or state action around debt. So, That's the first piece of it is simple debt collection, but as you can tell from this process of how it works with municipal courts, you have a debt, you don't pay it, a private debt collector attempts to pay it, they go to the court to um, force a wage garnishment, you don't respond. Then you are charged with contempt of court, arrested, and then at that point, when you are arrested, you begin to accrue this terrible thing. Is really what my, the most of my article is about, which is criminal justice debt. Mm-hmm. Anyone who is arrested immediately begins to accrue criminal justice debt, and this flows from a whole system of fees that are charged both by municipalities and often by private contractors who have been hired to um, to fulfill. Uh, requirements of the booking process. So for example, when you are arrested, you're charged booking fees. Many states have mandatory urine testing for drugs or alcohol. You're charged for that. Should you want a public defender? In many states, you are charged for a public defender. That money does not go to the public defender. It goes directly back to the municipality. And there are many, many fees. People are often charged fees for the For being prosecuted. So you have all these fees. Um, I think one of the estimates that I saw is that it's roughly a thousand dollars. It ends up being a thousand dollars per count. So um, and people are also charged simply for sitting in jail and for electronic monitoring, which I can talk about more. Electronic monitoring is one of the most important parts of the article because it's increasingly the vision of incarceration for the future, for non-felony offenses. It's viewed as a form of decarceration. But in many cases, it's a privatized system that's called offender-funded justice where people have to pay It's, you know, I hate to use the word, but it's almost considered a privilege to receive electronic monitoring and people have to pay. And these can end up fees being fees that reach up to $2,500 per month.
0: Yeah. How are people supposed to pay this stuff? Uh, I don't understand. I mean, first of all, if you're in prison, you're not working. So, and it's not like you can make money. I mean, the money, if you do work in prison is like 10 cents an hour, um, and then if you're doing the electronic monitoring thing, thats a, I mean, that's a, a lot of people can't afford. Like, how are you supposed to afford rent and then also to pay $2,500 a month for electronic monitoring? I mean, it's—it's. It's, how are people doing this? I don't understand how people are able to even do this in the first place, to live like that.
1: Well, I have the story of a man in South Carolina that's heartbreaking, who essentially, I think he's arrested for driving without a driver's license, and he was trying to take a family member to the hospital. And um, he ends up... Uh, he, he does electronic monitoring so that he doesn't have to go to jail. But after six months, he ends up just turning himself back in to the authorities because he said his entire life started to fall apart. So, you know, what this really is, is it's a classic example of the application of force in order to extract money. Charles Tilly called that a racket. Um, but that is, you know, the use of state force to uh, expropriate and redistribute wealth. So what happens is that the pressure is put on the entire family and extended family in order to pay these debts. So it is in fact a modern day debtors prison.
2: Connected to what Rania had to ask you about the way that cities are funding themselves with this money. Um, And, you know, you open, and I, I believe that you mentioned the Koch brothers and also in your piece, you're talking about, uh, the ideology of Reagan, and I think you acknowledge that there's a lot of ideology against collecting taxes from people, and there's a lot of ideology against funding public services for the public good. So, uh, I wanted to know, you know, how how you might put this into a context because it seems that because of this ideology, you have uh, both. Uh, regardless of stripe, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, they're deciding to balance the budget on the backs of poor and working class black Americans.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the class dimensions, and one of the things that my piece does is it makes a very strong argument about the relationship between race and class. Because one thing I'm perennially frustrated by is people trying to disaggregate class from race, which is really impossible in the United States. It's truly a settler colony, and the ways that race functioned are inherently about political economy. Mm -hmm. So the piece is a very forceful argument for looking at race and political economy and not trying to separate the two, because what you see essentially is uh, black citizens being targeted overwhelmingly, and black municipalities being targeted, and this process of criminalization is something that has a very strong economic dimension to it. Um, but you don't see white people of the same as socioeconomic uh, status being targeted in the in those numbers. So that that's where you go back to the history of convict leasing and debt peonage in the United States, you know, which was a system that emerges after emancipation and reconstruction and it was kind of the economic piece that reinstituted uh profound racial control and expropriation
0: can you actually explain like just give a brief definition of exactly because i don't think most people when they hear convict leasing actually know what that means it like you know know what it means like literally
1: so convict leasing was a system where um during reconstruction and especially after when you no longer have um federal troops uh, in place in the South in order to prevent the violations of essentially black uh, constitutional rights, that um, people were arrested on very minor charges. So often for things like vagrancy, which just means, essentially de facto means walking down the street. But if you're considered, if you're found in a place where people, where law enforcement and other citizens feel that you shouldn't be, you could be arrested. Um, vagrancy is also something that, you know, the labor crisis in the South, uh, after the Civil War, where white employers want black people to continue to work for them under the same conditions that they did under slavery. So the reason that vagrancy charges arise is that it's essentially a way to compel people back into the labor market. Mm. So what happens is that people are arrested on very minor offenses, petty theft, vagrancy. Um, You know, essentially, uh, people migrated to the cities after emancipation. And there's an attempt to to de-urbanize this population because, you know, southern planters want their labor force. And so people were arrested. They were given very long sentences. And then they were either uh, forced to work or uh, for the state or private contractors would come in and take convict labor and, and use convict labor. So essentially the New South is largely built on convict labor. And I give the example of um, uh, a kind of famous Atlantan, who um, really helps to rebuild the city of Atlanta after it's burned during the Civil War. And it's, he's famous for the production of red brick. And uh, that red brick is made by uh, convict leases. And much of the new infrastructure in Atlanta, the jewel of the New South, is built through convict labor. So it's a system where you criminalize people and then sell them to either private contractors or the state compels work. And the most important thing about convict, um, uh, convict leasing is that Often when we focus on Jim Crow, we focus on lynching as the primary form of racial control. Mm -hmm. But when you look at convict leasing, the estimates are that tens of thousands of people were killed, a third of them children. So much larger numbers of people are killed in these unsafe working conditions, forced labor, starvation, tuberculosis, all the things that come from forced labor and utter economic immiseration. So the convict Lacey system in the South is really the, an engine of growth. So there are, I, I describe this in such detail because there are precedents in our history for this, these forms of extraction of forced labor and also, you know, kind of the upward redistribution of wealth, this expropriation of the poorest populations. And when you look at our system of uh, courts and prisons today, 80% I saw estimates as high as 90, but we'll say between 80 and 90 percent of people that are being prosecuted in the United States are indigent. And that's why they qualify for a public defender. So this is a very, very brutal form of extraction. Um, And really, I I see it as a form of violence, of economic violence against the most vulnerable people.
2: And uh, is it true that this is a fairly recent phenomenon uh the high rates of court judgments in order to make it possible to collect this uh i guess debt money from uh black americans
1: i think so the problem is we need much more research about it pro publica did this amazing research where they essentially because in order to document this you actually have to go to local municipal courts and go through their court records and they did a comparative study in three cities i think one was newark the other was, uh, I think it was Jennings, municipality next to Ferguson, and then a third was I think in the Midwest. So they, it, this is very labor-intensive work, and I think we need more research. I say because I was really following investigative journalists talking about this, um, but I say that the system vastly expanded in the early 2000s, and I think that that's probably true, but. You know, the other hat I wear is a historian, and it will require historians going back and really assessing how new is this. If I had to guess, um, looking at other forms of criminalization of debt, I think there may be earlier precedents that people aren't aware of. But, you know, the whole reason a light has been shined on this is Ferguson and the activism in Ferguson, and that's really important. The reason that we're talking about this is because of the immense protest. And when Ferguson happened, there was a lot of mainstream discussion about the militarization of policing because it so profoundly demonstrated that. But um, as people have gone back to really assess what happened in Ferguson and listen to that long-term activists, it's clear that, you know, in urban rebellions, you always have a short and a long-term cause. And the short cause was the killing of Mike Brown and then the over-response and, you know, the use of tanks and— You know, CS gas and, you know, military-style assault weapons against largely young people just protesting nonviolently. And that was a spectacle and very powerful imagery. But the longer-term causes have to do with this mass expropriation of the Black community, not only in Ferguson, but in Jennings and the other surrounding municipalities. So I think more needs to be studied about this. What I found in the journalism, because there's actually not that much written about it. The ACLU and the Brennan Center have done these very important reports about debtors prison, but there's still more to be said. But it does appear that it, it, it began to, this system of using the municipal courts expanded in the early 2000s.
0: You know, you, you mentioned Ferguson and, and the other issue I, you know, with Sandra Bland obviously made national headlines. Um, uh, but one thing that I saw often left out of the narrative about what happened with her is that she had spent time in prison because she was, um, trying to pay off a debt, like that she had accrued <laughs> and in prison. And I guess that like, you can actually do that by going to prison. It's like every day you pay off a certain amount by being in prison. So you go for, like, a month and you can get rid of, like, a certain amount that you owe. Uh, And so I thought that was interesting. It's like there is – I mean, this really is – it does seem to be everywhere. It's like the – really just trying to use the criminal justice system to, like, take money from people who don't have very much. It's insane. Um, But, yeah, I just wanted to note that. I didn't know if that was something that you knew more about or –
1: yeah, the Sandra Bland, the economic piece about the Sandra Bland case, I didn't know about. People talked about it in the killing of, I think her name was Karen Gaines, um, that she also, when the police rushed to their house, that that was partially about a debt collection. But I went and read all the articles I could find out about it, and I, it was unclear. I didn't, I didn't see the precedent for it. But I think if we, if we use paying for punishment as a lens, mm-hmm. it's a lens for how to interpret and look at the criminal justice system and i'm not sure why but the economics of it have been much less discussed and i would say that's true for me too i was commissioned to write a piece on a on the paul acker case but immediately when i started researching it i saw this huge thing called criminal justice debt and i knew very i knew very little about it because it's not actually talked about that
2: much so because you mention it in your piece um, well, first, I uh, just want to make sure that our listeners do know who is Paul Acker, because you just mentioned somebody that is possible a number of people don't know anything about.
1: He's the African-American man that I talked about at the very beginning, who was in his 40s, who the federal marshal showed up to collect what, what we initially thought was to collect a student debt and later was found out that he'd been charged with contempt of court.
2: Oh, OK. And, and then towards the end of your piece, I, I think it's actually very relevant and topical to our discussion to uh, note that you you close with uh, some mention of kinetic justice and the free Alabama movement. And and currently there are, uh, I assume, uh, probably thousands of prisoners throughout the United States who are trying in some form to participate in a labor strike. That has been organized by um, the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee. And we actually had a, a, a media representative, a spokesperson on our show for our, our, our last episode. So I just wanted to ask you uh, about uh, this resistance and if, if you see this whole thing of uh, prisoners resisting pay for punishment in prisons.
1: Well, you know, it's so important for me that the people that are the most affected also are the ones who have the most important and powerful response. So I wanted to make sure not just to tell a top-down story, but also to talk about how people are fighting back. And I was so struck because, you know, the frame for the piece, which I haven't mentioned, but it's it's part of what I was talking about, kind of race and political economy, is that with the passage of the 13th Amendment, um, you had the emancipation of, of quote unquote, the slaves, I always feel uncomfortable really seeing like the state and referring to people as they are, (laughs) but people who have been um, really forced into this position. But there's the exception in the 13th Amendment, in all cases except penal servitude. And this is the giant loophole in the 13th Amendment that allowed for the continuation of what Douglas Blackman and many of the historians who came before him think of as a form of neo-slavery, so I was so struck by this May Day strike in a private prison in Alabama, where the, the the strikers say, quote, our mass incarceration is a form of slavery, because we're not being paid for our work, but we're being charged outrageous fines. So in addition to the system of municipal court charges, many people are literally being charged by the day for being incarcerated while being forced to work. So it's kind of a you know, epi extraction and then epi extraction on top of that. And I'm really excited about the prisons, the protests that are going on in prisons. And I want to make sure that we keep an eye on the people who are most affected, because very much like the civil rights movement, you know, that you think about the organizers like Fanny, Fannie Lou Hamer, who had been a sharecropper herself, that some of the most important voices come from the people who are the ones affected, and while that seems obvious, it doesn't always happen because so much of the way movements are understood is through mainstream media, which interviews the people who are the most accessible and also are are kind of you know people i think especially with the cutbacks in the media there's no, you know there's there's less uh support for you know, doing really deep investigative reporting. It's ProPublica that did a lot of the foundational research for this. Um, but I want to make sure that the people, you know, who are in prisons and who have suffered these forms of extraction, that they have voice.
0: Yeah, I know. It's a, that's the scary part about this is that, you know, they, these people aren't accessible. People who are dealing with this are behind bars and just like tucked away from the eyes, the cameras, the, you know, you, it, they are hard. And that's what's, I mean, it's really scary when people who have to strike are striking and a large part of the country has no idea because no one's covering it. And because they also are locked behind bars and inside cages. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's a scary, it's a scary thing to think about that that's what's taking place.
1: I think so in the process of being made invisible, <laughs> You know, that's so much about the way the prison system works. And also, um, it was so interesting in the ProPublica Pro piece about Jennings. They were talking about how, I think it's five out of eight people on the city council have experienced wage garnishments. But no one knew because people feel such a sense of shame about debt. that yeah. They didn't tell each other. And so... Because people aren't talking about it collectively, it makes it impossible to organize against it. And just like in a country like the United States, you know, there's a great deal of shame around poverty and debt, and there's even more shame around incarceration. That's why when these two come together and paying for punishment, it's very difficult for people to defend themselves. So, you know, trying to document some of the activism about it uh, behind bars and of the formal incarcerated. There's something else I wanted to mention, just because I didn't say it, is that One of my arguments is that the financial crisis is part of it, but I think it's much deeper than that. And it comes from um, uh, a lawyer from Arch City Defenders. I I quote him um, in my piece. His first name is Alex. um, Who talks about essentially when you have mass incarceration, where you're arresting people for very minor drug possessions and throwing them in prison for life and for long periods of time. You know, it becomes a normal precedent, the scale of punishment. Therefore, the next step to say we'll charge you for the price of incarcerating you for long periods of time becomes politically feasible. So a lot of these practices, I think, are unconstitutional. It will take systematic challenges, and the ACLU is working on them. But the normativity of stripping people of their humanity and throwing them in cages, you know, that's what's made it possible that you can charge them money and have a form of debtor's prison and no one talks about it
0: god damn (laughs) it's just like awful on so many levels um I mean I I, there's I you know now that we've gone through your piece I know there's some other things that unless Kevin had any more questions specifically about this particular topic
2: oh no I'd like to get some of her comments on some other stories and issues
0: yeah since we've got you um since we've, we've, are like holding you hostage on our show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's, I mean, there's a lot of other things happening right now too, and, and, and we'd love to get your take and just like have a conversation about them. Um, one thing that's been going on that I know Kevin wanted to ask you about was, uh, like just to switch from something so dark to something a little bit more light. Um, is Lena Dunham? <laughs>
2: God. <laughs> well, no. If if you're willing to share, I, uh, I I read the short thing that you posted on Facebook, and I think that you got to something that actually is worthy of discussion, which is you know the representations of New York City, and 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 basically what is being put forward by her as someone who's part of uh, the entertainment industry, but then also. You know, I'm just I'm 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 struck by um, the dumbfounded nature of her comments. In you know, basically for people who maybe have no idea what we're talking about because you do not occupy your time with celebrity gossip and stuff like this, (laughs) is that you know she was making comments that were um, very viciously sexualizing uh, Odell Beckham Jr., who is a New York Giants wide receiver. And so anyways, you you had something I wanted you to share your, your comments about it, because I think that you have a very, very valuable perspective.
1: I was just looking at my own comments because I was really angry when I wrote them. Um trying to remember exactly what I said, but essentially, I think I said um, this is Uh, Lena Dunham is a racist embarrassment, just like her show, and I'm so tired of insider industry people with little talent or wit um, constantly being on television. (laughs) um, That's pretty much what I said. But I, I amended it and then talked about, you know, it's just in a long line of people from Woody Allen to Friends to Lena Dunham who imagine New York City as white paradise, and I, I will confess um, on your show, I love television. I watch especially HBO and Showtime series. I watch Netflix series. That's actually my favorite genre because I feel like it's a great, um, it's really a series for writers. You know, these mm. incredible, they're like these brilliant modern telenovelas, and I watch them all the time. So I tried to watch Girls, and I couldn't watch the first 10 minutes because when I watched it, I was like, this show is the white supremacy show everything about it. And I think, you know, her comments are are good in the sense that they're overt and they manifest things that I found obvious in the show after watching it for 10 minutes, which is, you know, the use of a particular kind of, you know, because there's a class and a race dimension to it. Um, You know, upper middle class white people in New York City who understand themselves always as the intelligentsia, the intellectual vanguard, and even their hipster status as something so inherently interesting. But at the core of that is a redefinition of cities, and certainly New York City, you know, and a city that's so black and Latino, and so half of New York is born outside the city. And to have that redefined in a way that looks like... I grew up in a very white part of the country. It's 95% white, very white, working-class area. But I mean, they represent New York as being even whiter than where I grew up. <laughs> it's <sounds> crazy.
0: <laughs> no, it's totally it's it's totally true, and it is an insufferable show. I like remember watching it, and I could. But the thing about it was like I hated it so much, but I just couldn't stop. Like for like a season, I watched it, and I was like, oh, and I would I would watch another episode anyways.
2: But it's awful. Also, uh, just you know, one more thing. Not that this is even like a critical thing for us to dwell on, but I do want to emphasize. That it does strike me as is, you know, a white supremacist manifestation of expression to insist that a black man acknowledge you. You know that she's upset. Basically, the core of her comments, which we're not going to repeat on the show, are just that she's not being noticed at a at a gala that she is being at with this person.
0: Well, you should. We should. Re- Maybe we should repeat them in case anyone doesn't know. <laughs> It's just, it is really gross, but it's also like this whole, like, I'm a victim thing. It's me, 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 me. It's this like, I'm like a weird looking white girl. Like that's her whole thing. Her whole her whole shtick is like, I'm not a tip like I'm not your typical on television on in the movies looking white girl. Like I, you know, I'm not super skinny. And so because of that, like somehow she's like this big victim wherever she goes, to the point where like it's okay for her to just be like, oh, that black guy's not talking to me because he doesn't want to fuck me. Like that's what she said. Um, because I'm just like, that's all, because like the parent, that's all that he cares about is like, he'll only talk to, it's just disgusting. And it's just this me mentality. It's just me. Everything's about me. Everything's about like my feelings and nothing else matters. And no one else's humanity net, like even really matters. It's just all about me. It's like white narcissism.
1: No, it is. And a sense of entitlement. And the piece point where it intersects with white supremacy is that the ver- the mere virtue Uh, and I use that as a historical word, not as my word, but the mere virtue of being white warrants you the status as the embodiment of femininity, even when, in her view, you know, she's she's, um, you know, not normative femininity, but to to try to take one's whiteness and use that as representative of what a woman is. <laughs> and I think for women of color, you know, of course, we experience this all the time and we understand the historical operations of it. So I think that part, that's the contradiction. Right. She's like she says that, oh, he's you know, I'm just a piece of meat. Um You know, he can't recognize a woman in a tuxedo, but the inherent the notion that you are inherently desirable, you are inherently the embodiment of woman. So it's a form of violence against, you know, this uh, young man, but it's also a form of violence against other women. And that's what I saw in girls. Right. Which is even the idea of saying girls who gets to be a girl who gets to embody femininity. You know, Dorothy Dandridge went into a pool in Las Vegas and they drained the pool. So this is, you know, it's a historic, the idea of whiteness as, you know, iconic and and valuable. And it's just a short, you know, it's like you had Martha Martha Dietrich in Blonde Venus, but there's a way in which Lena Dunham sees herself as that heir, right? She should be the center of, of what, what a woman is. And so it's just, it's so offensive on so many different levels. And I just... Um, it's frustrating. You know, that's all I can say It's
2: frustrating. <laughs> well, just as a counter, um, and because we happen to have veered into this, is there something right now that you see out there work being done that does have a good representation that that seems to get um, some of the issues that you deal with correctly? I mean, is there anything that you're watching that maybe is a telenovela that you've been drawn to that does capture what you, you, you would like to see on screens?
1: I really did like Jane the Virgin. I was going to
2: say the same thing.
1: <laughs> I like Jane the Virgin. And initially when the show started out, I was a little bit worried about it because it was so, um, you know, we are Latino. We are Catholic. This is Catholic. There was just this element that was so Mm overdetermined. But as the show went on, I thought it was just really quite remarkable and has a wonderful sense of humor, deals with, you know, issues of deportation and, you know, long term um, lack of citizenship. And yeah, I, I, I guess I would counterpose that as an alternative. There are other things, although I feel like I haven't seen anything recently. I just happened to watch the uh, the next season of Jane the Virgin this summer. So it's still It's unlocked. also just
0: like entertaining and funny <laughs> and like a, a good show. So it's like it's, it's like fun to watch. But no, I know it's like it's hard with, TV, with like these shows because, I mean, shows that I really like have so many racist elements to them. Um, But like again, most shows do. So it is—it's kind of like a tough or like sexist elements to them. I mean, like I watch Game of Thrones, which is probably one of the most graphically violent, unnecessarily violent shows. There's like unnecessary rape scenes in it, and it's it has it has had extremely seasons where like the racism is just like holy crap. But um, but yeah, like I still am entertained by it. So I feel like that's like a lot of a lot of television or, or I guess shows even online it's kind of hard to find something where it isn't. And so, yeah, Jane the Virgin, I would agree, is probably one of the few.
1: I guess the other one I, I would point to, although it's certainly not perfect, is Sons of Anarchy. I just recently watched all of it uh, this summer. And it's not, again, it's not a perfect show, and it has a lot of gratuitous violence against uh, Black, uh, Blacks and Latinos. But what I like about it is that because television still remains so disproportionately white and what it represents. The best of the shows often end up being these meditations on whiteness (laughs) and meditations on denial, you know, as Kurt Cobain said, denial, denial, denial. (laughs) And whether it's Sons of Anarchy, which I liked much better because there's much better representation of Latinos and it has actually some interesting historical stuff about biker gangs in it that I think were quite interesting. But you know, Breaking Bad, also deeply racist show, but yeah. brilliant meditation on whiteness and denial. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that's often the best that many of us can hope for in mainstream representation yeah. of whiteness, rather than the raising up of others. And The Wire did that certainly for you know black men. The Wire did that, but you know a lot of other shows. Uh, we're still waiting.
0: You know, it's also interesting too because it seems like more recently there's been attempts like. To try and, like, have more... Which is fine, like, and great to try and have more, like, you know, different, diverse people on television. But then you still have, like, white people writing it. Um, so it doesn't come through right. Like, there was one season where Lena Dunham actually tried to add a black character. And it was so awful because it's like, you, what makes you think you can even write... Like, find someone who, like, knows you literally have never... It's not like as a white person you can't write any character who's not white. It's just, like, it's, you don't even know other people who aren't white, really. So, I mean, I don't know how you're going to translate that into a show, Well, you but know, part of it's just a really straightforward labor issue. You know,
1: hire black writers, hire Latino writers, hire Asian writers. You know, I was in L.A. for two years. And, you know, as discriminatory as it is in front of the screen, behind the screen, it's much worse. Hmm. And that's why the shows sound like they do. You know? <laughs> so if you really want to make a commitment, you've been criticized for white supremacy in your show, change the writing team. Because Lena Dunham certainly isn't doing all of the writing herself. Yeah, and right. who was a notorious screenwriter who wrote um, when people were criticizing the show for its whiteness? And then she tweeted, um, when I watch Precious, what I really think about is that I don't see me. And she capitalized me. Wait, and- wait
0: oh, oh my God, I have no idea who you're talking about. That happened? Her head writer,
1: yeah, she tweeted that, and then she tried to delete the tweet, and it became a controversy. But she has a long history of making racist comments.
0: Jesus. Well, all I know is, like, you know, one of these days it would be really great to, like, ha- I mean, <laughs> to to just, like, have, like, a real-world depiction on, on television. But, you know, for the time being— um, I guess we'll have to rely on just like white denial shows, (laughs) like you mentioned. Another thing we wanted to ask you about too um, is—is I mean, I as you know, um, it's uh, extremely—it's extremely offensive to the military to not to not stand for the uh, you know Star Spangled Banner. Um, And I was hoping that you could explain to us why it's so offensive. So I'm sure that you agree that that's the case. But no, what's been happening with Colin with Colin Kaepernick? It's like, it's amazing. This guy didn't. It's it's funny because he like he had a very specific reason for why he wasn't he wasn't standing for it, and it didn't have anything to do with the military. But suddenly, it turned into this like hate fest against the military, and it was so bizarre. Well, you know, this is going to contradict what
1: I've just been saying about loving television, because even though I say I love television, I actually don't have it. I just watch everything online. So I've missed, like, the huge hate fest that I read about these things all through social media and, you know, through print papers. So I've missed a lot of that. But um, I got a sense of it from, what was the name of the 31-year-old soccer player who uh, did a protest in support?
2: Megan Rapinoe?
1: Megan Rapinoe, who I think is absolutely amazing, from reading also about her response is how I got a sense of the scale of anger about the military. But, you know, the the use of the military that has so many, the you know, lionization and enshrining of the military, you know, the profound militarization of the United States. Um, it's used in so many different ways, so that any critique of nation, a country, a nation, becomes an attack on the military. And the military is seen as this. It's almost like the World War I vision, you know, of the lost generation, of the people that have made the ultimate sacrifice. And of course, we have this cultural discourse, but when you actually look at the social welfare benefits, the level of homelessness in the military, you know, the military is the idea of the military and the rank and file people in it is deployed against any critique of imperialism or state violence at home or abroad, but we actually have very little social welfare as we do for all Americans. I mean, the military, they have access to the military welfare state, but it too is truncated. Um, that I'm just always struck by that.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's amazing. Um, that's true. And I think with sports, it's become a thing where like the military, especially the NFL is so entangled it, like with one another especially after 9 eleven <clears throat> that um you know at some point like I had, a, I had a friend of mine who like is like a former NFL player telling me um how the like Navy seals would just come and give talks to them like and th- I mean they, it's like they were they do so much together like there's like military like sports um events and like they it's it's bizarre but yeah they've just like totally militarized uh sporting events, like sports in general. And, and so it's almost like the NFL and sports in this country, like whether it's mostly, mostly I think football the most, but also basketball and baseball, professional sports become like almost like a part of team America. Um, and so it's like almost like you had not just a football player, like football players are almost like seen as soldiers, but you're just not supposed to hear them talk. They're just supposed to like entertain you. Um, but, like, someone spoke out and, like, said something that people didn't want to hear who, like, follow who are, like, really into that sport. And, like, everybody went nuts. And it's, like, almost like he like they think he, like, betrayed the military because he's, like, a soldier who turned on him or something.
1: You know, I wrote this piece on Cam Newton about a year ago. A little could I know what he was going to say uh, a year later or eight months hence about race no longer even being important for his sponsors. But... Um, you know, what's really striking is that, you know, the military at 60, I saw an article about it saying that, uh, I just slipped. I said the military, I meant to say football, football, <laughs> yeah. is back, and that's done very little to stop the discrimination for the hiring of coaches. And, you know, I come from a generation where there were no black quarterbacks. So, you know, just the idea of black quarterbacks is a big deal. I'm from Western Pennsylvania, which was home of Joe Gilliam and everyone Black people all in that part of the country all knew what happened to Joe Gilliam as part of the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers, which was this brilliant young quarterback who was marginalized and really his life was destroyed because of it. So he was, you know, kind of this martyr figure that we all knew about. So just for me, the idea of a black quarterback is still a very big deal. You know, I think for people of a certain age, they all feel the same way. But what's really interesting about football is that football players are some of the most politicized. Mm -hmm. So it's, I love these stories where, you know, the thing that is the heart of an ideology, you know, I wrote about that in terms of the Bay Area, you know, this is the home of the part of the Manhattan Project is the architects for it, the intellectual architects and the scientists are at Berkeley, but Berkeley becomes the center of the anti-war movement. And football is the same way. You look at the protests that happened in Mizzou and how important they were to the national black student protest, and also now. So you're seeing this resistance right in the heart, you know, that kind of the belly of the beast of, you know, ultranationalism and militarization, and that always gives me hope.
0: Yeah, and I mean, the one good thing is, like, um is, I guess, like, uh, Kaepernick, he hasn't lost any sponsors, but then other people have. Like, I'm just seeing now this one player, Brandon Marshall. Yeah. Yeah. um, He, like, basically uh, took a knee uh, during the National Anthem, and he lost a sponsorship from the Air Academy Federal Credit Union, which makes sense.
2: Yeah, it's from the Air Force Academy's Federal Credit Union.
0: It's just so bizarre. Like, it's like these people aren't even like they're not even protesting. It's not like they're protesting war. You know what I mean? That's the it's like it's very something very specific. But it's I mean, it's just so wrapped up. And I guess what you said is true. And it's it's like, uh, you know, the militarization of just American society. It's everything. It's construed as like an attack on the military with these
2: kinds of things. Well, sir, I, I had a question for you, Donna, which, you know, you were talking about how these players are politicized, and so the, to to how they're expressing their protests, uh, something that uh, was raised by uh, Dave Zirin is, you know, this issue uh, right now with, and, and we don't know what's going to happen, and people are probably going to listen to our episode, and something will have happened in in the game that will be played on September 11th, but... Right now, there's all this discussion about the Seattle Seahawks and their plans for the entire team to do something. And one of the players is Doug Baldwin, who's a wide receiver, and he's, he's very interested in, in doing something. But he's also been tempering expectations by saying it's not a protest. And, and, and Dave says – Dave Zirin says that, well – you know, you're, you're kind of removing the protest element by making it a, a team-building effort, that there really needs to be some kind of a, a sacrifice, that what's really powerful about what Kaepernick did is you know, he was doing it um, and, and putting himself on the line. That something could happen to him depending on how people reacted, and it seems like that element is being removed by what the Seahawks players might be doing.
1: Mm, that sounds very possible you know i haven 't followed the story, so i don 't know
2: but what do you think like uh, putting it into a historical context and like following sports like in, in and how, how do you relate what you 're seeing happen now in this in, as we 're going into this football season in comparison to to early things like whether we 're talking about Jackie Robinson or whether we 're talking about like um, you know, Carlos and and, uh, and Tommy Smith raising their fists. Um, you know, those things are all individual acts.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, like any great act of courage, it's you know, the, the reason these have such impact is the emotional. You know, the this the for me that's how I always experience them. It's the emotional power of someone's level of commitment. So. You know, in a way, when they do these protests, they dramatize the individual relationship. And given that in the United States, sports figures are are kind of ultra humans, mm-hmm. right? So it's like we're looking at something that's like an imago. This represents what we would all like to be. You know, I mean, culturally, not how I feel. <laughs> Side, sidebar about that. You know, and, uh Uh, Football players are so politicized. And I don't necessarily mean politicized in terms of real world politics. I was thinking about unionization and the fight over uh, concussions. But, you know, they have short playing seasons and long term injuries. So this is a very dangerous job. It's a hard job. And so I think It's just, it's always very moving to watch those individual acts of courage. And I don't want to focus on the individual, but I think that's the emotional drama of it, right? It's knowing, you know, during the Tommy Smith and John Carlos protests about everyone's watching it and feeling that moment, but thinking about what's going to happen afterwards, the dangers of being stripped of your medals, or in the case of football, being stripped of your sponsors. So, I, I mean, I... I don't know, because as I said, I always like to follow the particulars, and so I'd have to read about how they're using it as team building. But sometimes I, I'm happy to see a spectrum of different kinds of protests, because that's something we've all been thinking about a lot, about when, what individual and organizational actions are versus a movement. And a movement means it's going to have many different valences to it, some radical, some liberal. And so any, I, I do think appropriation is always a problem. you know. And if you're looking at what's happening with Forbes, you know, they're constantly, they've had many covers about Black Lives Matter and articles about it. And I think that that's an attempt at appropriation. So appropriation is always dangerous because it can denature protest. But on the other hand, you know, seeing many broad expressions of it, that also is part of what a movement is.
0: Well, um, I do think it's interesting that he, I mean, he, it's, it's he didn't know, it's not like he did this in like, in like you know was screaming and holding a protest sign. It's like he apparently had done this at a few other games before, uh and it just like some you know sports reporters like took notice and then they went and asked him why he was not standing and that's like how so I just think that's also interesting it's like everybody's like he did this for attention, and it's like, well, if that was the case, I mean he would have been like shouting up and down you know and making a big thing of it, but he was just like doing something personal, and he was asked why he was doing it, and he explained why um. And, I mean, I think it's, like, I don't know. I think it's good that it started a conversation. I'm surprised this kind of stuff doesn't happen more often. Uh, And, like, it's, like, even people who, I think even some of his teammates who, like, don't necessarily agree with it, like, are also just really supportive. Because it's, like, well, you know, it's an important topic. It's an important issue that we need to talk about. Which is, like, the treatment of black people in this country. And people of color in this country. So... I don't know I guess we'll have to see what happens with it but so far um I don't think he's lost it which I think is interesting. I don't think he's actually lost any sponsors as of yet. Is, is that right? Yeah. Um, Go ahead. Could I add something to
1: that? I just I wanted to put a plug in for this. You know, there's a wonderful film that was made in the mid 70s called Hearts and Minds and it's I think the most powerful, I teach it all the time. It's one of the most powerful films I've seen made about the Vietnam War and in general, uh, an activist film against war. And the thing that always, whenever I'm screening it to undergraduates, it's always uncomfortable because I'd say a really significant part of the beginning of the film has these absolutely almost unbearably long sequences about football games, (laughs) where it starts with like the night before and it shows like the goalpost and all the care that's being done for the lawns and the slow filtering of people into the stadium and the you know assembling of the teams. But it's painfully long and slow, but it's an argument film. And part of that argument is that it's making that parallelism between football and imperial war. So it's very, very deep in the DNA of the United States, and I think that that's what makes it so powerful.
2: There's actually uh, – it's interesting that you mentioned that film because Facebook just censored the uh, image from that, – that iconic image of the of the napalm girl – who is in that uh that is, is captured very vividly in that documentary that was that was actually censored by Facebook and uh the editor of Aftenposten which is a Norwegian newspaper uh was was banned from lost a Facebook account for um for posting that and it's just What? Yeah. It's
0: like an iconic thing it's like an
2: iconic image. Yes, yes. Uh Well, I know that in our grab bag of things that we wanted to talk to you about, Donna, we had one last thing that we thought we'd just put to you because it's reached peak levels of ridiculousness. Well,
0: basically, Donna, what we're wondering is, are you a KGB agent? Do you work for the Kremlin? Um, Are you a Putin stooge? Um, We probably should have opened with that because we don't like to have Putin spies on our show. But But we'd really appreciate if you could debunk any... um, any accusations?
2: <laughs> but this is something we've seen take over, and it really gets to both myself and I know it gets to Rania. And I don't know, is it, is it getting to you? Because it's just really insane. Um,
1: well, again, I'm very happy that I do not have television. <laughs> I'm very insulated from it. But um, I watched the Democratic uh, committee from gavel to gavel. And, you know, with a bunch of friends, we were all posting and talking about it simultaneously on social media. And I just felt like I was watching the launch of a new Cold War. You know, they were using the language of the Cold War. They were using the kind of conspiratorial, you know, the... the
0: do you mean at the convention?
1: At the convention. Oh, yeah. 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 And I think that, you know, because, of course, you just had the WikiLeaks revel- revelations. So, you know, just watching this. Um, and I think it's such a self-conscious attempt to try to tap into... American Demonologies. One of my mentors was Michael Rogan, and he wrote really brilliantly. He passed in 2001, but he wrote a very important book called Ronald Reagan, the movie that had a lot of his collected essays. And his argument goes all the way back to, you know, kind of left, left liberal scholars during the Cold War who talked about American demonology as the core language of American politics. So that the way that political programs are really articulated is always through the response to this demonology. He called it the paranoid style of politics. Hmm. And to me, this is a continuation. It's, you know, it's refigured again and again.
0: Yeah. I I get the sense. It's not necessarily about just the election. It does feel like this is an attempt to really revive the cold war. It seems, you know, the war on terror, um, as, as much as it's been, like, a boon, it's it's just not an issue. It's still an issue for people, but it's, like, not as easy to get people riled up for war. Like, people are still generally, like, not interested in another Iraq. Whereas, like, it just it does seem like there is a turn now to try and make, like, to try and revive just, like, anti-Russia sentiments. Um, now, Russia's the new big, like, big bad boogeyman. Um and not necessarily al-Qaeda. Like, it's, it's just interesting. That's what I see. And it does seem to be... It goes beyond, I think, the election. I think it goes more to, like, where the establishment is headed. And I, that kind of actually frightens me.
1: Well, I'm very worried about it because I think that it's so... You know, it is coming out of the Democratic Party. You know, and it's very likely that um, Hillary Clinton is going to win. And, you know, the... Um, just the intersection of the large military contractors and defense and the neoconservatives and, you know, this just refiguring of a a Cold War, which makes you, it makes me think about, you know, our Cold War and how much of that was about ideology. You know, we think of it as always being about anti-communism, but it's interesting to see them try to revive the Cold War, you know, against a president who is part of the new oligarch, the new oligarchs, right? So,
0: Yeah, you know, yeah that's not a communist, so you can't call it anti-communist anymore. Yeah, so it's about,
1: you know, it makes you, it, it forces you, it's like looking into the mirror, it reflects back on the United States about the role that the military plays in American politics.
0: Well, I think it's also a genuine effort to like, because like you can't have the bloated military budget unless you can point to actual, to actual um, threats. And you can't, I mean, you, you have to have actual threats. I mean, that's the whole purpose. That was, like, what happened through that throughout the 80s is you had the neocons, like, really took charge of foreign policy under Reagan. And they just, like, made a ton of, sh- they, made, they literally made things up. Like, which is what they are really good at doing. They, like, made things up about what the Soviet Union was doing uh, to try and, like, manufacture fear. Because the only way you can keep your military budget completely bloated uh, is to, like, to be scared of something. You have to have something to be, like, threatened by. Um, and they they literally, like, they, they, they got in the way of of trying to like make peace. <laughs> um, intentionally so. And and so it's like now that's what I mean by like it's like the war on terror doesn't seem to really galvanize the the population as a whole to to wanna go to war the way it used to. And so it seems to me as though this is like a new thing for everyone to fear. It's like we gotta you gotta you gotta fear Russia. And in a lot of ways it feels like a lot of this rhetoric is meant to provoke Russia. I mean Russia by no means is like some paradise place. Obviously, it's like not the greatest government in the world, but it also does not pose an actual legitimate threat to the U.S. I mean, you just can't compare the two. It's just it's absurd. It's absurd that we should be afraid of Russia. But I don't know. I just it's like with Hillary Clinton, I really do. And I think this goes back to maybe, you know, what's happening in Syria right now. And You know Hillary Clinton. She wants a more aggressive approach, and she really wants confrontation in Syria for a multitude of reasons. And one of those reasons happens to be because she's a pro regime change kind of person. And the other thing is that fact that it would be like in a confrontation with Russia. And I just I find that so alarming that that is where our foreign policy establishment is at. Like you see it from all of their think tanks. They're all saying the same thing. No one, no one. I mean, it's actually you know I've I've come to really appreciate Obama in a way that I didn't used to, because um, he actually, despite, I mean, I, his, I'm by no means endorsing his foreign policy whatsoever. But compared to, like, the foreign policy establishment, he's actually um, held back. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm really scared of what things are going to look like once Hillary is president.
1: Well, that's my sense. I mean, I would have, you know, posed the question to you and you answered it for me. But that is my sense about part of what's driving it has to do with regime change in Syria and the potential confrontation with Russia that that would cause, Mm -hmm. you know, these kind of larger geopolitical goals of Putin's advisors. Um, But again, like the, you know, it's like there's the short and the long term. Mm -hmm. Talking about paying for punishment, And it feels like to me the short term has to do with their specific campaign that they want a regime change in Syria. But the long term, you know, issue is just the scale of the you know contract military contractors and defense and how important they are in American politics. But they remain invisible. Behind the demonology, you know, the argument that it's the spectacle of the evil empire and the spectacle of these people that the, that are you know constructed into these monsters, but what hides are the interests that lie behind this constant militarization of politics. And I, I'm just thinking about this because I've been working on my new book and reading a lot about iran Contra and what was going on in the '90s, and it's so you know. When people talk about Israel, it's very common, and I think among American intellectuals, it's very common to talk about the militarization of the country. But the United States is a profoundly militarized country, but it doesn't understand itself in that way.
0: Yeah. It's more effective, I think, because of that.
1: It's part of the reason that even, you know, I'm a historian, and there's very little work devoted in history, actually, to studying the military. Because it's really, it's actually quite a marginal field. So even though it's in many ways it's the largest employer in the United States, it's important not just for foreign policy, but it's also important for it's the largest polluter, it's the largest employer, it's very important for our domestic economy as well. But it's almost like it's the elephant in the room.
2: (laughs) So um, I I think we probably need to wrap. uh, But I I would be remiss if I did not memorialize uh, the tweets that were sent out by. Joy Reed of MSNBC that that really touched off our our interest in asking you these questions on this subject. So so just for you and and Donna, I realize you might be experiencing these for the first time. So
0: these actually shocked me. Like I mean, I didn't know people actually thought these things.
2: So (laughs) um, it begins. I'm going to represent it full, so there are no like you took this out of out of context. Uh, The thread here. Is, by the way, Trump isn't the first pro Putin Republican. His pal Rudy and other GOPers have praised Comrade Vladimir over President Obama for years. Trump is just the first to create a cult of personality strong enough to make pro Russian sentiments normal among rank and file Republicans. I imagine the old time American Communist Party is spinning in its collective grave with envy at what Trump is accomplishing. Even Jill Stein, who's taken the Socialist Green Party full Putinite and the Putin-tilting Snowdenistas, haven't been nearly as successful. That said, for most Americans, it's shocking to see an American presidential candidate openly touting authoritarian communist Russia and in the party of Reagan no less. Just stunning.
0: Authoritarian communist Russia. Like, does she know the Soviet Union is not in existence anymore?
2: Who, who is this? Joy Reed from MSNBC. Well, she has her weekend show and I believe it's in the same sh- uh, same slot that Melissa Harris-Perry used to have.
0: Yeah, I didn't realize that she had that slot, but you know I responded. Like I said, I quoted her tweet and I cuz I was like cuz she said um she said, that said, she said, for me, it's shocking to see, it's it, for most Americans, it's shocking to see an American presidential candidate openly touting authoritarian communist Russia. And so I responded, how about a presidential candidate accepting money from misogynist Saudi tyrants? Does that <laughs> shock most Americans? Like, it's stunning to me how this whole narrative has become about how evil Putin is and how it's like, you can't just like go around, you know, running around complimenting authoritarians when like the entire democratic establishment, in fact, like the entire establishment period is very, like they love tyrants. Like they're, they're best friends with tyrants. Like Saudi (laughs) Arabia is the best example of, it's like as tyrannical and backwards as you can get. Like women, are like sl- like women are literally like have less child like less rights than children in that country. Um people are stoned in the streets and like heads are like literally heads are chopped off in the streets like Isis. We're best friends with Isis. Saudi Arabia is Isis and those are our pals. And like and, like, it's amazing to me that anybody thinks they have the moral authority to stand there and suggest that it's somehow un-American or out of step for, like, an, a, a presidential candidate, let alone an, an American official, to, like, rub elbows with an authoritarian. And it's ridiculous.
1: Yeah, it really is. <laughs> cool. Well,
2: I don't know if you have any final thoughts for us. We'll, we'll let you, um, you know, put your mark on the end of the show. <laughs>
1: I'm still a little bit in awe of what (laughs) Joy Reid said, a little bit in shock. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I think I'll just, I'll end with my sense of shock.
0: (laughs) Well, I didn't think we could shock Donna, but there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on and joining us. I, you were, you provided so much insight on so many important issues. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. Yeah. Thank you so
1: much. I really enjoyed it. And, um if you have people haven't read it, please read Paying for Punishment.
0: Yeah, I really I encourage everyone to, to read it. It's it'll leave you so angry. I like, I was infuriated um after reading it just because it was like I didn't know I didn't know there was like criminal justice debt like this. I had no idea and I, I considered myself someone who knows about the criminal justice system. So yeah, I encourage everyone to check it out and read it. And it's also written by Donna. So and, and you're like amazing and engaging and uh, wonderful to read. So Thank you so much for coming on, and hopefully we can have you back on sometime soon um, to chat some more about you know Lena Dunham and Putin. <laughs> <laughs>